Welcome to the Dr. Dad's Podcast, where a naturopath and chiropractor come together each week to share lifestyle medicine, health advice, and inspiring interviews with some of the top experts in health and wellness, bringing you the latest in nutrition, exercise, ancient healing, toxins and detox, your microbiome, mindset, hormones, brain, and much more. Stay tuned. We're going to teach you how to experience growth daily. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Dr. Dad's Podcast. Uh, Dr. Nick here with my main man, Dr. David Wardy. How's it going in Texas these days, buddy? It's it's overcast today. We keep getting this like hot cold, hot cold every other day. But we didn't yeah. get much of a winter, man. But Texas is good right now. Nice. You guys are getting lots of, lots of snow right now, right? Well, we were we were we had a couple uh, weeks where it was just freezing here in Vancouver. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's nice now, and and we're I'm I've been cold plunging like crazy. Yeah, which is, watching, which is one of the conversations I would have with one of our, or with our guests today because I was watching their YouTube video, which was so well explained on all the physiological benefits of cold plunging. But buddy, I've been in my cold plunge six o'clock sharp every morning, and if, if for anywhere between three minutes is where it kind of started upwards of like eight to ten minutes now, and it's it's so motivating because it makes me want to move. So I go right to, to working out and try to heat my body up afterwards. Um, but we're going to dive into... Going, man. Yeah. Well, sorry, say that again? How's your recovery going? It's oh, it's better, amazing. Huh? It's amazing. Yeah. But we'll talk about that with uh, Justin, who's, our, who, who's yeah. our guest on today. So Justin is all the way from uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. And I imagine uh, you guys are in the middle of your ski season there too, buddy. But um, So he's the director, lab director of an incredible institute. If you haven't heard them, I guess you've been living under a rock like us. Uh, we didn't know about uh, Justin and the work that he's doing until more more recently, but he's a lab director of an institute called the Institute of Human Anatomy. And while you guys are tuning to this podcast, please go to their YouTube page to check out the Institute of Human Anatomy because my goodness, if you ever want to learn anything about human physiology, human biology, what happens when you drink alcohol and it goes from your mouth down into your liver and then basically out your body? I mean, step-by-step processing of, of human anatomy and how that interfaces with things that we do on a daily basis. So that and a whole lot more. He's a, he's a, a what's this? He's got over 16 million followers on the Institute of uh, Human Anatomy. So there's a massive channel, massive education platform. Uh, he's now a social media guru teaching people how to more effectively communicate their message through through science and, and getting that out to the world. So, uh, Justin, I know there's so much more than that, which we'll dive into, but thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Happy to be here. It's it's good to talk to you guys. I got to tell you a story of my first experience with a cadaver lab, and then let's jump into that. And I would want to hear how you got into that. Um, so in naturopathic training, we had to do uh, as a round of anatomy uh, with with a cadaver, and I remember the the trainers who who led our cadaver experience were these really wonderful men that were very spiritually grounded, and they and they really set the stage and the intention of what it was going to be like to dissect a human body, which which was actually quite emotional for me at the start, just thinking of, you know, here's this, this, uh, this vehicle that, uh, where spirit once inhabited, you know, whatever your belief system may be. And now we're, we're going to be picking this body apart and learning incredible stuff about, about human anatomy. And to the point where at one point I realized I was sort of in my body, out of my body, sawing open a skull 
because uh, I want to get in to see what the brain looked like. And I had to take a step back and go, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm sawing a human skull. This is mind-blowing. Um, anyways, the end of the experience, uh, by the end of the experience, I had a, a new appreciation for human physiology. I learned a ton. Um, and it was both uh, scary, I guess, and emotional and 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 also just an incredible learning experience. Um, so what got you into this field, my man? You know, um, I mean, first, I do want to say uh, that is an incredible experience. And I think like it's important for people to know that uh, that's the norm is to have that moment where you have to kind of pull back from the situation and kind of like organize yourself. I think that's the normal uh, response. If, and if, if that's not the response, that's when I actually tend to get more worried with people. <laughs> um, but for me, so, you know, I kind of just found myself in this line of work. It really was some, wasn't something I anticipated, but just being in the right place at the right time. And it really just comes down to uh, Jonathan Benyon. So Jonathan Benyon, if you look on the YouTube channel, you'll see that there are two of us. Jonathan Benyon is the other creator. He is the owner and co-owner and co-founder of the Institute of Human Anatomy. And when he opened the lab, a few months afterwards, he asked me to kind of come along and um, kind of help him just run things more or less. It was... You know, for me, it was a long kind of trajectory to just kind of find myself being a fan of anatomy. You know, you know, the first time I went to an anatomy class, just falling head over heels for it. And it kind of just unfolded from there where I just um, couldn't get enough. There was something amazing and beautiful human body, but not necessarily from a treating it perspective, but more from just a straight science perspective. Just what are the parts? What are the components? How do they work together? Uh, you know, I kind of liken anatomy almost to biology, biological watchmaking, where it's you're just you're learning so many different parts and how they work. And for me, that's just been fascinating. And so, you know, getting to work with real human body donors has been the privilege of a lifetime. And it's uh, just something that once you do, you just start to and you, once you get settled with it and what it is and how this works, it's something that's um it's something very addicting almost because it's, it's like you start to realize every body is different. And when you get to see that and really understand that it just from a, from a nerdy perspective, it, it doesn't get any better. It's funny you say that there on our anatomy cadavers, there was, there was one lady who had such severe scoliosis that the the organs that were in the body were so severely displaced to different areas of the the system that you just wouldn't expect to see. Another example was the 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 one of the gentlemen had uh, three or two lobes of his lung instead of three, and there I, there was one other thing. It was just like these these mind shifts. And 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 I remember the, the anatomist that we were working with. He says just because you see things a certain way within an anatomy textbook doesn't mean that that individual has things in that actual place. And it just blew my mind to think that, you know, obviously we're all created differently, but to the extent that, that we in this, you know, however many uh, cadavers there are at any given uh, teaching platform, we had a couple in that, in that teaching platform that, that had vastly different uh, organization of their anatomy than than we would have ever expected so it, it is truly we are different inside and out there's no there's no doubt about that you know i i often tell people that anatomy at least anatomy 101 right your intro anatomy level course 
Um, but which is honestly as far as most people within medicine ever go, which I understand. And but that's just a science of averages, you know. It, that's all it really is. And what like when so for instance, um, I forget the exact percentages. So just for the listener out there, don't take these take these with a giant grain of salt. But biceps brachii, the muscle in your brachium, can ha- I think it's like something around like seventeen percent of the time has three heads, and then it can even get up all the way up to seven heads. You know, I know, uh, I think it's 20% of the population for rectus abdominis has 10 heads. 2% of the population has 12 heads, right? You start to see that what we really are is just variability. And so from a text, from from a teaching perspective... That obviously won't work in the classroom. I, when I'm when I'm lecturing with anatomy, it's like I have to stick with the averages because that's the only way I'd get through the course. But it's my favorite thing to do is to show people with the real body donors. Remember that thing I told you in the classroom? Well, here's like 10 different exceptions to it. And it just shows the power of nature and variability within our species. And it's just something that uh, um, I, I love to impress upon people whenever given the chance. No, that's remarkable. I mean, I can't help but think that, you know, with some of these uh, experiences that we had with with our class that, you know, every person obviously had their own sort of preconception of what things are going to be like, but to to be able to get intimate with what's going on inside the body, to recognize this variability, to also recognize that everyone's got their own unique journey in life and that we're all uniquely suited and adapted to that. It, it really like it does force you to kind of take a step back and go, you know, man, there there is so much beauty and be able to see it from the inside out. That's remarkable. What do you like just on the anatomy side of things? Like, what are some like crazy anomalies that maybe you you've seen? Uh, or I'm sure there's been so many, but I'm curious to hear just some other things. Like you said, with uh, the different attachment points and different numbers of attachment points. Like these are really fascinating things to learn about. But what are some other ones that, that you might remember? You know, I I wish I had some like great answer for you because I get this question all the time. And in my experience, I haven't had anything that has just, you know, knocked my socks off. But at the same time, you know, for me, from a very nerdy standpoint, there's so many things that absolutely blow my mind. But, you know, the easy example is, you know, I've seen a lung as well that only has two lobes and the right lung that should have three. Um, You'll see the appendix in all sorts of crazy places that you just don't anticipate, you know, uh, redundant colons that are just so extra long and twisted. You're just like, I don't even know how this is fitting inside. Um, You know, you're just able to see, um, like you're saying, even kyphosis. You know, I've seen like extreme kyphosis and you can see the just disc degeneration to where you're just like, how that works. Um, But I think the one that's not even necessarily a variability that really was impressed upon me was early on when I dissected lung cancer for the first time. And seeing just those lungs in that pathological state it's not that I couldn't understand why they died. I couldn't understand how they were living five minutes before they died because the lungs were just so stiff and black. I think disease is one of those things that when you see how it really interacts with the body, um, and not even just like, you know, disease is in pathological disease or as much as visceral fat and how that's actually deposited in the body. When you start seeing those types of things, um, it just, it, it just shows you, the power of biology. But um, in terms, again, of just like variability, I mean, I've seen muscles attaching in places that I don't expect, which then makes me wonder, 
you know, about leverage points, especially with like athletics and you start just, it's so many cool conversations you can have when you just see a, a muscle that may be attaching a centimeter this way or a centimeter that way, but really asking yourself, what is that going to mean for leverage? Would this, would this individual have been a great rower? You know, is like you start asking those really cool questions and um, when I'm in the lab, um, but honestly, I never got to see anything crazy in the sense, like I didn't, we never opened up the body and then it's like, you know, everything's reverse. We never got to see anything like that as much as, you know, from a nerdy standpoint, I really wish I, I could have seen. It's, it's almost like, I mean, I know we're going to talk a little bit about AI, but I, I'm, my wheels are turning. Just what if we knew these tendencies or these variations about our, our own unique physiology so that we could see what kind of maybe sports we'd be more adapted to or what kind of work we might be more adapted to. It's kind of, do you ever get a chance to see these people's charts and to under, really understand, like, is it a very, like, do you, do you get to see people's charts to know the kind of life they lived um, and then and then to see the, the, the anatomy? So I don't, but it's, and that's the thing is sometimes I wish I could and other times I'm glad that I don't. Because the less I know, the easier it is to stay detached from the situation. But at the same time, the more you know, obviously, the more answers you have. And so for me, what I, uh, the only thing that we ever know about the body donors is their age and what they passed away from. Everything else is, I mean, obviously, the body donation programs will have that information. But for us, just as a gross anatomy lab, it's not something that we're made aware of. So what we do instead is what I like to call Sherlock Holmesing where it's just deductions, you know, you're just basically like, you know, you see, you know, a really great example is we have a cadaver that his Achilles blew out. So you can see the scar tissue there. And so then I obviously I'm like, oh, okay, he had an Achilles injury at some point, and then he's missing a gallbladder. And you're starting, you're starting to be able to piece together aspects of the life that they had, even without the chart. Um, but unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, again, it kind of depends on your perspective. I don't get it. We don't get those details. Instead, you know, it's more just you open them up, you look and you discover what actually is happening. And that's what, you know, it kind of excites me because then it's, you never quite know what you're going to find, what you're going to see, what the body, the story, the body's going to tell. Go ahead, David. Now I'm having all these memories from grad school, buddy. So just like Nick, we had our cadaver class and you guys are talking about the whole step back i remember all that the other thing i remember is all the formaldehyde and how much it was burning my eyes <laughs> when i was in the lab but buddy i remember once we got the cadavers open i just remember like you guys were talking just looking at how intricate we are right and just hearing you guys talk about these variations and variability of things i'd imagine it's so much fun for you to sit there and and be able to dissect at that level every day i mean for me, from a standpoint, that's how I learned the body the best. I feel like if we didn't have that in school, I wouldn't be anywhere close to the knowledge base I am of understanding how we're put together. And so I'm, I'm huge on those things. I've even thought about, you know, they still offer for CE credits. You can go and do cadaver classes to those doctors to keep learning, right? I've even thought about doing that again, just because it'd be a nice refresher to go a little deeper and to see things with my knowledge base now versus where it was at when I was in school, right? So I have some questions though, just like Nick though. So I know you may not have any crazy stories, but like you're working with this stuff all the time, but like 
what would if I asked you what's probably your favorite part of the body after being that deep and, and looking at these things all the time like what's what's fascinating you the most about the human body as you're just kind of working with the cadavers all the time the nervous system without question and it used to be it used to be neck and neck between the heart and the brain um and I think the heart just blows me away just for the resiliency of it, the fact of how many heartbeats are beating over your lifetime, the amount of just abuse that it takes. But at the same time, the complexity of the brain, especially when you are holding one in your hands, when you are looking at these structures, I don't know how you can't just, you know, be overcome with in awe at just the sheer complexity of it. So for me, it's whenever I'm looking at the brain, even a brain that I've seen a hundred times, it's one of those things that it's like, I, I swear, I, I notice new things about it each time, you know, as you're looking at just the intricacies of it. And so that's that's what really still to this day captivates me every single time. But at the same time, everything does. You know, it's like, I mean, seeing the inside of a kidney is, is a really fascinating thing. Um, and I will say, it's like exactly what you were talking about. You know, it's there's something you learn just by seeing these things in real life that you couldn't learn with the best professor, the best instructors, with the most class time ever. That there's just something raw about it. Forgive that term, but there's something very real about it that you can get in an instant. And so it's as impressive as the brain is. I'm equally impressed with the liver. I'm equally impressed, you know, with the bladder. It's because, you know, what I often tell people is anatomy is a gateway science in the sense that once you learn how the body is built, it's then, it just, it's so empowering because then you're like, oh, well, but how does it do that? Oh, and then that's physiology. Okay, well, how do I fuel that? Well, then it's nutrition. Okay, well, how does it move? Well, that's kinesiology. And so all of a sudden, you know, just from a purely intellectual standpoint, um, it just branches out so quickly that um, it's just so exciting. And so being able to see these things almost no matter what it is, is just always a privilege. But without question, the brain always blows me away. Awesome. My second question, because you have to cut through this layer all, all the time during your dissection, what have you gathered about the fascial system, buddy, throughout the body? So, like, as you're as you're messing with the fascia, I'm real curious as you, because I mean, how many dissections have you done to this day? Probably, like, it's hard to say. It's hard to say exactly how many. You know, it's and it's one of those things that, um, yeah, I don't even know if you really keep count too. Yeah, but what I would say when it comes to fascia is fascia is some it it's become a celebrity and that is both good and bad because the bad part is that it can be easy to spread misinformation or there's miscommunications about it but then the good part is it's also getting the recognition that it's not been getting for so long you know it's common in in, in my world to say that fascia has historically been that thing that you remove to get to what's interesting right you just kind of peel it away and then you look at the muscle mm -hmm. tissue and you start to have the real conversations, but we're now starting to understand the complexities and depth of fascia. Um, at the same time, though, I found that there's a lot of people who are willing to kind of like really talk about fascia in ways that honestly, the data is just not there. Not to say that it won't be there, but it's just, it's hard, you know, especially from a science communicator standpoint when, you know, you're, you, you're about accuracy. It's, it's, so for me, it's like, I try to like, calm down the hype train on fascia while also talking about how cool it is in the same time. And, but what I always try to tell people about fascia is 
it is beautiful. When you are able to start pulling the tissue apart and seeing those collagenous networks, really how they are just connected, it just, it does something to you. And in the sense that you're just really understanding how intricate everything is about the body. And especially when you think about just how collagen is the most ubiquitous protein in the body, it's literally everywhere. You start to understand why the hype around fascia exists even if the data's not there, it's not me saying that's not the case. You know, it's me being, oh, I'm I'm just holding my breath a little bit longer before we get a little more data around fascia before I'm just going to get overly excited. But I love looking at it. I love touching it. And I hopefully, hopefully this isn't too graphic, but one of the, my favorite ways with dissect, to, to, to dissect it is you just put your hands in it and physically spread it apart. You mm-hmm. just pull it, right? You're not using any instruments. It's just pulling it apart. And when you do that, you get a real tactile understanding of how strong it is too. And it's just an impressive tissue. And when you just, you know, think about where it is everywhere in the body, it only becomes more impressive. Beautifully said, man. Thank you. Yeah, I'd, I'd love for you to expand a little bit on, on some of the, the, the myths, or not the myths, but like, what do you feel is sensationalized when it comes to fascia? And where, where, do, you, where do you like to put your energy when you do sort of discuss its role? Well, you know, a lot of, I always become skeptical seeing products being pressed, pushed out to people like, um, I'm, I'm saying this not because the product itself, but more along the name, there's something like called the fascia blaster. You start to see mm-hmm. things like the, the foam rolling that has gotten kind of, there's just a lot of things that are said. And so I guess the thing I always try to stress to people is, you know, what is fascia made of? And fascia is made of collagen. And what is collagen's sole purpose in life? To resist being pulled apart. And so then the problem is when you're foam rolling and when you're fascia blasting and using a lot of these tools that have hit the mass market, their goal is to stretch it, which to me doesn't make sense. And so what I what I worry is just there is a philosophical misunderstanding around fascia as well as a literal misunderstanding around fascia and what it's there for. Fascia is there to connect things, to keep them together, to be strong. To say that something's t- if if fascia is tight, you have compartment syndrome and you you have a real problem on your hands, you know. So then it's like okay, well then if we if we don't have compartment syndrome, how is it tight? And it's hard because then the mechanism of action we just have no idea how to really determine that. So for instance, they discovered. Um, hopefully, I'm not getting too nerdy and into the weeds, but they discovered a specific type of Perfect. fascia cell called a. Um, uh, well, I'm not going to go into the name, but it's a, it's a specialized muscular cell in fascia that does generate tension. We discovered that inside of fascia, there is indeed muscle tissue. Problem is, it doesn't generate enough tension to be measurable almost in any meaningful sense. So then what I'm just trying to say is, I think fascia sounds cool. It's great to talk about. You can market it in unique ways. But I personally believe from what I've seen that most of the culprits around muscle tightness and weakness and those types of things are really muscle tissue. And fascia is just kind of this cool kid on the block, this new kid on the block, even though it's been there obviously for a very long time. Um, it's just um, a lot of the, in the fitness and health and wellness realms, you're seeing a lot of people really focus on fascia in ways that I just don't necessarily think are, um, well, they're, they're, appropriate i guess that's the best way to put it 
Could you could you just like I remember I remember uh, at one point we were we were playing with the fascia and I was pulling the fascia on the toe and I saw the fascia on the face move. Um, uh, maybe that was a one off. I don't know, but like, do you see that? Like, there's just that 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 intense movement when you just move one part of the fascia. So you can um, with the bodies that I have experience with, you won't because they the way the body is fixed. Right, the whole the embalming fluids will right. denature the proteins in ways that won't work. Gotcha. But at the same time, there's many different embalming methods. And but from just a purely mechanical standpoint, that should hold true. Right. Um they in anatomy, there's kind of like this term we call anatomy trains. So an anatomy mm -hmm. train or a fascial train is that network that are go there's multiple networks all throughout the body of fascia just going in continuous sheets and they run from the toes all the way up to the head. And it does seem very likely that, you know, tension in your toe could actually possibly result in a headache. The hard part is parsing out the, the many different other possibilities as For well. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like, to me, I think there's this part of me where it's like, if I'm just communicating science and someone's like, what do we know? We don't know much about fascia. But then if someone's like, what do you think? I'm like, that's where that's a different conversation. And that's where it's like, oh, well, I, I wouldn't be surprised if fascia is responsible for all sorts of things simply because it's the perfect protein for transmitting energy and tension throughout the body. Yeah. So um, definitely, yes, in my opinion, it, it, there's going to be connections all throughout the body. Um, how meaningful that is for things like tension headaches and all, all sorts of, it's hard to say, but mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if there is a real connection there yeah okay. uh david do you want i know you love you love talking about fascia is there any other questions or th comments you want to hit on that one well no you kind of talked about it at the back end where you talked about it's the perfect layer in the body to move energy and mm -hmm. what a lot of the research is starting to approach which he's probably looked at i'm guessing you've seen some of this stuff justin is they're starting to show how you know, this collagen is moving liquid crystalline form of water through it. And they're, they're showing that it's actually moving light. And so that's actually from some guys that I have a book right here. I can't remember his last name. Let me pull it up. Um, a couple books, but some of these guys out of France, have you, have you seen the Jean-Claude Gumbertru? I'm going to murder his last name. And Colin Armstrong, it's Architecture of Human Living Fascia. So what these guys are doing is they're doing a lot of dissection and imaging of the extracellular matrix. And they're finding some very interesting things, but kind of like what you're saying, right? Like we don't have the science right now exactly to say that it's doing more than what it's already doing, but we're getting closer to creating some more understanding. So, you know, the, the tensegrity portion, like you're talking, and then this, this talking about moving energy to the body and it being a communication network where we basically communicate and process through the fascial network to even the cells at the cellular level. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. And, and, and I, and I will say, you know, um, there's, Again, there's super exciting research finally being done. I, you know, honestly, I don't even know if it's really super exciting as much as it's just there's research being done, which hasn't been the case, you know, yeah. and it's super exciting because we're starting to understand or be get a better understanding of this stuff. You know, it's, I just, I'm always, you know, I'm always cautious at the same time where, you know, it's sometimes some things might intellectually seem interesting and then practically there's not much value there, or maybe there is. And the hard part is, um, and this isn't necessarily a problem, is, well, it is a problem, but it, I, I understand how it works. The 
the issue though we also have within the fashionable investigations or i guess the science being performed is that the people performing it are the ones who also really stand to benefit from fascia being awesome but that's also a problem because but that the reason why that's the case is because no one else is doing the research so who is going to do the research it's like all of a sudden you find yourself in this really terrible situation where in my mind you know in a perfect world funding would be all over the place for fascia because i do believe there really is some exciting stuff there um it's just it's hard to it's hard to know where to focus the attention um at the moment at least for me but i have been looking at the i i, I try to keep up on fascia as much as possible because fascia is probably one of the most the tissues that i'm asked about the most and i understand why because it is exciting yeah Love it. No, it's it a great answer, man. And it, you're right. It is exciting. It's exciting that we're just looking there now because, you know, we just cut right through it. Right. Like you were saying before, nobody thought it had much to do with anything. So, yeah, I don't not that I want to beat a dead horse on the on the fascia, but I am curious, like outside of the, the embalming situations, do you notice that fascia for some people is harder to pull apart than it is for others? Or do you see more restriction in that fashion movement, say around those like, that I think you mentioned the guy with the scar tissue and the keyless heel? Um, like, can you talk a little bit about some of like like maybe injury sites and 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 if you see changes uh, at that level too? Yeah, or what scar tissue is like? Like, I'm. It's just interesting to 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 look at things at that that level. No, I completely understand, and I do think like because you know. I think that it's important to kind of really understand the science here. In the 80s, um, anatomists across the world got together and decided to reclassify fascia. Prior, I think it was around 85. Prior to that, fascia just meant connective tissue. So literally any type of connective tissue, you could say fascia. And then they were like, ah, oh, well, that's a little too broad. You know, anatomy is a science of classification. We need to be super specific. And so these days... Fascia really only means two things. There's superficial fascia and then there's deep fascia. Deep fascia is what wraps and compartmentalizes muscles. And superficial fascia is what kind of connects that fascia to the adipose tissue in the hypodermis or that subcutaneous tissue. And so the thing to understand, though, is if we're not talking about it that specifically and we're more just like talking about connective tissue, what I'm trying to say is it really just depends on how dense it is. It depends on the orientation of the fibers, right? So for instance, if I was trying to pull the IT band apart lengthwise, I would never be able to do it, right? The, 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 it's just the tensile strength is off the charts. But if I went parallel with the fibers and tried to spread it apart almost like a curtain, I could, you could almost very easily just shred the fascia. So then it's like, okay, well, that's a more regular orientation of the fibers. But if it's more scattered and it's more dense, it's really difficult to pull it apart, but you can kind of jump on top of it and spread apart the layers. So it's, it's, it's hard to describe. It's like, it depends on where we are. Sometimes it's very easy to separate because you're between the fibers and other times it's very difficult to separate because the fibers are pulling against you or doing their job and doing everything they can to resist being pulled apart. Um, but there's loose connective tissue, there's dense connective tissue, and just and there's variabilities in how dense and there's variabilities in how loose. Some connective tissue, I mean, like you could almost breathe on it and it go, falls apart. Other connective tissue, you know, we have like 85, 90 year old body donors in the lab 
their connective tissue is rock solid. It's not going anywhere. You have to cut through that. So it just kind of depends on the area and how much collagen is present and what direction the collagen is lying in. Very good. It's fascinating. Um, I want to ask about the, the heart uh, because the heart's an interesting one too, just with regards to here's this, you know, pump that's in the middle of the chest and it's, and it's pumping blood to these extremities, which might be thousands of kilometers away. If you actually stretched out these capillary networks and whatnot, how the hell does that actually work? Like that, that blows my mind that you can push blood through that great of a distance. Um, talk about if you could talk about that like how how does that pumping action actually working um i've heard uh under i've had an understanding that the way that liquid moves in a tube there's there's this sort of laminar flow there's uh what's the name of the researcher the fourth phase of water guy he talks about how how fluid moves in in sort of like a tubular network and that there's this propulsion mechanism that happens just by having liquid in in a tube like that which might make up for some of that um the great distance of, of pumping but tell me what what blows your mind about the heart and those capillary networks because I, I think i find it's fascinating as well the cardiovascular system is amazing because if you took um every single blood vessel and stacked them end to end i believe you can go around the circumference of the earth at least two or three times it's something like that and oh. so you're absolutely right like that's that's an enormous distance to cover and so definitely Fluid dynamics plays a role, right? Just like you're saying with laminar flow and everything. But you also have to, there's also solutes in the blood that are going to have, you know, they're going to have um, electrochemical properties that can also attract the water. So you have like osmotic pressures, you have hydrostatic pressures. So those types of things are definitely going to play a role. But the thing that I, I personally find a lot of people don't um, know is that there's different types of blood vessels. What I mean is just because... There's not just arteries, there's elastic arteries, and then there's muscular arteries. There's more muscle tissue in larger, in, in, in thinner veins, and there's less muscle tissue in larger veins. And so what ends up happening, right, I think we all understand because we've all, you know, listener has probably seen those action movies or something of someone, like if the carotid artery gets cut, you're going to get this spray. Well, the heart is very close to the carotid artery. So it makes sense as that left ventricle is pumping that you're going to have a massive amount of pressure. But then the question is, okay, what if you cut the tibial artery down towards the foot, down towards the ankle? Is that going to have the same amount? And it's not going to be as pressurized, but it still is going to have pressure. But the thing that a lot of people are missing is a lot of that pressure is coming from muscles inside of the blood vessels actually squeezing it too. So you have this, so you have the heart this enormously thick left ventricle too. So if you ever compare the thickness of the muscular wall of the left ventricle to the right ventricle, it's enormously different. So you have this really strong heart pumping into, you know, the blood vessels, you have all of the fluid dynamics at work, and then you have muscles in the blood vessels pushing as well. And so it, when you add it all together, that's where you start, you're able to cover these distances but it's still impressive it's 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 extremely impressive because like you're saying i mean this is thousands upon thousands of kilometers or miles and it's it, it's just obscenely amazing how the heart and body is able to do it all and regulate it all that's the other thing that really blows me away is 
the regulation of it, not, you know, when do we need more blood here? When do we need less blood here? That really impresses me when you start, you know, getting like histamines and other types of, you know, chemicals involved. It's, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah. I, part of this, this conversation, I, I, what I hope it's doing for people is that when they, when they listen and they hear diff, these different pieces of their body broken down to, to the degree that you, that, that you're speaking. And also this is probably gonna get them excited to go check out the YouTube channel. So you get all the visuals and, and really understand this at that level, but hopefully it just creates a little bit more appreciation because a lot of times we take, I mean, who doesn't? We take so much for granted, especially in this physical body and just all the intricacies of, of all the networks of things and how they regulate, like you said, how they communicate, how they perform activity. And what happens like as far as car, car, uh, compartmentalization, when things are not working well, what are the diversion strategies like the new angiogenesis and all the other things that compensate for disease in the body? I mean, it's remarkable to, to, to really think about things on that level of anatomy, which is why I hope these conversations, though broad, hopefully get people to really think about, oh, why, do, why is my blood pressure up? Well, it could be a factor of many different components, right? And I think that's partly where some of the, the success, a big part of it, I imagine, where some of the success of your communication comes down to and why you guys have just been such a force in the education side of things. 100%. And, you know, I, but I mean, obviously, I'm biased in this, but I, I, I personally think anatomy is the most important science that anyone can learn, at least in the introductory stages. And it's actually two, there's two reasons for it. The first is the relevancy for human health. You know, we say this all the time, but it's like people know more about cars, computers, the lives of celebrities oh, yeah. than they do their own bodies, which... I'm not saying you shouldn't know anything about those things. It's just, though, this is the one thing you carry with yourself 24-7, 365. But the other thing that's powerful about anatomy is it teaches you the complexity of systems. And, you know, because inherently anatomy is a reductionist science. You're literally just ripping the body apart, pointing at something, giving it a name and saying, this is what it does. But all of a sudden, things get really interesting when you start putting the systems together. You know, it's like the nervous system is awesome, but how cool is it that the nervous system works with the endocrine system at the same time? Oh, how does the cardiovascular, like, if, you know, if I explain to someone just a jump scare, right, if I just like round the corner and I scare them, the amount of things that are happening, you know, you have the sympathetic nervous system firing, the pupils dilating, all of this happening in, in thousands of a second, that's all controlled by the nervous system. But then what happens once they realize, oh, Justin, you shouldn't have scared me. Their heart starts beating, but it's a little bit delayed. And that's because the endocrine system had to get involved, right? And like when you start mixing the systems together and seeing how complex all of this gets, it's it teaches you to appreciate just complex systems in general. You know, not even necessarily inside of anatomy or inside of biology even. Just, I mean, literally, you start to go, oh, the more, this is again, I'm biased, but I feel if you understand anatomy, it makes it a little easier to know economics, it's almost like learning a different language, right? You learn your second language, it's easier to learn your third. Anatomy is just relevant to people, but it also teaches you the complexity of systems. And it's a very, very powerful um, learning tool. Well, that's my next question for you, Justin. You know, in healthcare, there's many different views and paradigms at which the body is put together and how we're treating and, and the medicine that's brought forward by that type of healthcare. You've seen a lot of bodies right you, you have your 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 education and anatomy and things like that 
if I asked you with the amount of experience you've had with all these things, and like you're saying, this system of systems, right? Would you lean more towards like we're basically more of a holistic approach of like we're a system of systems working together to get the whole system to be online or more linear like conventional medicine is looking at it right now where they don't, they separate everything with the way that we approach the body. I'm really curious how you see that. Such a great question. And I am 100% on the holistic side. I mean, obviously there's going to be case by case, you know, instances, right? You know, you break your arm. I think I understand how, what we got to do here. Um, but if we're talking about, especially like preventative health, when we're starting to look at all of the many components of health, you have to look at it at an organism level, right? I, I I'm, this is, I, again, I'll, I'll do this really quick, but I, I always, this is like first lecture. This is day one when I'm lecturing in the classroom is around the hierarchy of life where it's like you have molecules that turn into cells, that turn into tissues, that turn into organs, that turn into organ systems, and then turn into organ an organism. And what's the, and I understand why we look at things at a tissue level, at a cellular level. I understand all of that, but obviously something has gone wrong. Obviously there is something missing in that equation. And I think a lot of it has just come down to I mean, it's overwhelming. I can only, I, I can imagine just, you know, oh, I have to treat the organism. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, wait, you have to, I have to know more than just a specialty. I mean, that's, that's really difficult. I understand that this is a massive problem, but I think it's what it is the problem. You know, it's one of those things that you just have to look at the organism as a whole, not with everything, but with probably more things than people expect. And that is, that's the gig. You know, that's, that's what you have to figure out. And I think, you know, it makes sense to me that, you know, people who stop drinking alcohol, get better sleep when they start treating all these different, oh, I feel amazing now where, you know, I'm not just taking Ozempic, you know, or I'm not like, again, not to demonize that. It's just at the same time, it's like this, I, this approach that we've had for literally all of modern medicine of just treat this thing, treat that thing, treat this thing as though they exist in a vacuum. It obviously isn't working. And I think it's because they're not, we're not looking at the organism as a whole. Beautiful, man. Well said. Yeah. So well said. Um, so Justin, I mean, obviously anatomy is a big part of your passion, but you're also, you know, you're, you're teaching people how to, to get their message out uh, to the world. Um, tell us a little bit about your journey of anatomy and dissecting everything on the physical level to sort of, I guess, maybe dissecting the virtual world and, and then driving or having interest in, in AI technology and whatnot. Like, tell us a little bit about why you're putting your energy there uh, now. So, you know, an interesting thing happened to me when I went online, and that was I really enjoyed the process of what it took and what it takes to be successful creating social media. And what I realized is I actually really just enjoy creative processes. It's something that's really fascinating to me. I, I am, I've always been the type of person that it's like, I, if I enjoy a movie, I like to find the behind the scenes documentary of how that movie was made or something along those lines. So there's just something about the process and creative processes are very fascinating to me. But what I've realized is that my understanding of the human body and kind of going back to what I was mentioning earlier with systems thinking has really helped me with creativity. And it's just something that I find I enjoy talking about just as much as I do in 
enjoy talking about anatomy is dissecting creativity. What does it take to be successful, you know, at anything creatively? But I mean, obviously, I'm a little more partial towards social media. It's something I know. You know, I know what it takes to become successful on YouTube, on TikTok, on all these different platforms. But I'm really interested in all domains of that. But I'm trying to view it, and I, because I always have, well, not always, but at least for the past 10 uh, ish years, viewed it through, an, you know, the lens of anatomy, just the complexity of it and how there's value in breaking it down into components, but then looking at it from a more holistic, you know, perspective. So these days, you know, I'm, I'm really starting to get excited and focused on just creativity as a whole. And artificial intelligence is really fascinating to me. I think, you know, you know, I mean, I can say, let me, this is a little bit of a sidestep, but I do think it's interesting. It'll be relevant to you guys. You know, I'm, I'm not so much, in, I'm interested in chat GPT, but the ones that like, I'm really interested in are ones like, um, Google's MedPalm 2. I don't know if you guys have heard of Google's MedPalm 2. It's trained on uh, medical licensing exam questions. It's trained on the medical literature. And what's fascinating about it is it's scoring high on empathy in almost higher in some domains than you actually have with, you know, healthcare providers. Wow. There's all sorts of really interesting things happening inside of the AI space. And what I'm really interested to see is how that's going to start finding its way into social media, how it's going to find its way into healthcare, how it's going to find its way into literally everything. I think most of the conversation around artificial intelligence right now has been, it's either it's going to be the greatest thing in the world or it's going to end the world. But no one's really talking about the really interesting things that are happening in the middle. And so I think there's a lot to talk about there. And it just really excites me. It's just, it's something I'm nerding out on. And, um, so I'm always in, I'm always looking for fun conversations around artificial intelligence and just creativity as a whole. So I'm curious, bud, how do you think it's going to like, where do you think it's going to start changing healthcare? If you had to guess right now with like where it's going to start making the biggest impact. So personally, I think it's really going to start hitting kind of like your um, clinics, probably more so than the hospitals first when you're, you know, think about it like this. Um, ChatGPT, that file size it takes to actually have ChatGPT on your phone is, is going to be around 100 gigabytes, but we're getting that lower. What my point here is, imagine if you had the power of ChatGPT in your health app and you pair that with, you know, your smartwatch and it's looking at, you know, heart rate. So there's some interesting things. Um, artificial intelligence has been looking at uh, EKGs and ECGs. And been able to determine the sex and gender of the individual. It's been able to determine whether or not they have kidney disease, if they're diabetic, all from oh, looking wow. at an ECG. Wow. I mean, you have cardiologists who've been looking at you know ECGs for 35, 40 years, and they have no idea how they do that. My point is when artificial intelligence starts getting integrated with just basic information that we have, you know, I have my smartwatch on all the time, all the time. What is it going to be like when you have really high-end artificial intelligence is analyzing this information, then let's say you go to the clinic, right? You go see your doctor, you go see your provider, and you walk in and you're able to actually communicate with an AI that works in that clinic. And what you can do is the, your provider has a collaborator. And, you know, it's like it's literally this really super-powered collaborator that's been trained on all the medical literature that exists, all of it, 
including the new ones, somewhere around 3,000 new medical literature pa uh, papers are published every single day. There's no way any provider could ever keep up with it. AI can. And now you have doctors and PAs, you have all these people who are able to work with it to make and provide better treatment outcomes. And, you know, uh, it, I'm really excited to just see it. The hard part is predicting exactly how it's going to be outside of just saying it's going to be integrated into everything we do and especially within, you know, healthcare. And so for me, it's like, I see better outcomes happening. I see a better and deeper understanding of individual data and it's going to start shifting more towards personalized medicine is what my personal, my personal guess is. Well, as I'm hearing you talk about like, you know, these devices we wear, right? like the aura ring, the whoop band, like, I mean, just early, early detection, right? I mean, the fact that just, you know, AI is figuring from EKGs, like when we have kidney problems, all these other things. I mean, there's all this data we're already collecting. And if in real time, it can say, hey, you might have this problem, you need to go see a doctor. I mean, early detection is going to be huge. And like you're saying, of course, uh, bigger treatment outcome. I mean, you know, it's, it's funny. It's like you said, everybody's just right now talking about is this the end of the world or is this going to make life better? But I'm glad that you you framed it that way, man, because, you know, when you when you look at it through the lens of medicine of what it can do, it can do so many wonderful things, you know, and I just it's exciting, you know, to 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 see where that's going to go. But I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm a little scared, too, man, to, to see what's going to happen with all this stuff. I, I'm I'm the exact same way. This is uh, I'm I'm in like this. It's almost like a melancholy where it's yeah. like, you know, it's just you're perpetually just almost always feeling like things are going to get worse, but I'm still optimistic. Right. But at the same time, it's just there's so many exciting things when you look at just the advancements that have been made in just the past year in drug development, our understanding of proteins. I mean, it's just I think it's an fast no matter what, it's going to be a fascinating time to be alive in the sense of the advancements that are going to come hopefully before the end of the world. Um, if that does is, is how it goes, it's right. just going to be utterly, utterly mind blowing. Very cool. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a, it's fascinating to think about. I mean, the, the integration aspect and I mean, I, I imagine that most people in most of their careers of choice are thinking like, when do I become replaceable? You know? And and but the way that you're get the the way that I hear that you're communicating is is how how do we interface how do we how do we progress you know using a technology such as this that that can support you know our our ev evolutionary understanding of ourselves our, our so much I mean there there's there's a really interesting and and yeah like you said a scary side to it as well so what about so let's dive back into like. This, this idea of creativity, because I love how you expressed why you wanted to move in this space of, of teaching people on social media. So what does that look like for you? Like, what, what are you doing specifically in that, in that area to either maybe educate or help people? Because like, I know that obviously you're a big part of uh, influencing people through, uh, was it TikTok? For, you were one of the first educators on TikTok back in 2019. Um, where, does, where does this go for, for helping to educate people? So I have, I, before I ever got on social media, um, I've always been a writer. I did a lot of freelance writing um, where I would just, you know, I'd write, I'd write on blogs for chiropractors, you, you name it. Just like I was, I, there's, I've written hundreds of different blogs, scientific blogs and articles 
um, all over. And I just love writing. And it's one of those things that I just wanted to get back into. And so I decided to start my own Substack newsletter that is so I can kind of scratch that itch of writing. But the thing is, the focus is really on creativity. And with it, I'm starting a podcast as well. But it's kind of like this one-man solo podcast of me just kind of like riffing on things that I find fascinating. But the idea is I really, you know, there's a YouTube channel associated with it as well. It's just called The Dissection Room. So the everything is The Dissection Room. And the idea, though, is is more just dissecting topics, ideas, creativity, um, and kind of like seeing how we can, you know, you can utilize those things. Um, I think working inside of social media and content creation for the past four years has just, I, I think I'm set up for success in a lot of ways, just understanding like, Hey, you know, you have to be able to shift with trends. You have to know when, you know, when is, when do we say like short form content? Do I want 15 seconds? Do I want 30 seconds? Do I want a minute, two minutes and how to adapt with that? It's something I'm very just comfortable in now. And what's interesting is I see kind of going back to what you were saying, like, are we going to be replaceable? People are worried. I guess why I'm really interested in creativity right now is I don't see it as much as a replacement, as much as just understanding how to switch things up, how people just have to kind of look at it as a collaborator and change with the trends, see how things are going to be, you know, changing around you and how you can capitalize. Because the thing is, I personally view human creativity as the most valuable skill set we have in the age of AI. Because if you can use your creative senses with AI, it's really going to be amazing to see what you can pull out. So for me, the dissection room, Substack and YouTube channel and just podcast, all of it's just this place for me to just talk about creative things. That's really what it is. And my hope is that, you know, uh, people will find it interesting as well um, in terms of, I mean, I love coaching people as well. If anyone's ever interested in just understanding how do I do better on TikTok or YouTube or this, that, or the other, just that kind of stuff is really fascinating to me. So that's kind of like what I'm, I'm starting to focus a little more on. Love it. So that, that um, education side for others, you know, like what, maybe what are your top three things? If you, if you, if I could put you on the spot like that, what are the top three things that someone could do to help get their creativity out there through either creating a YouTube channel or podcast or I know you you do work with veterans as well and, and helping them to sort of maybe steer into this new world. Um, but what are maybe what are those top three things that people could do to, to start to to create that platform and, and express themselves on social media? Such a great question. Um, the one that I recommend the most right off the top of my head is to read more fiction. And fiction is one of those things that I think a lot, a lot of us is kind of, we wanted to read the nonfiction because the nonfiction, I think a lot of it almost, it's like a notch on our belt makes us feel really cool. It's like, I read this book and that book it took, but fiction, I think really helps get the creative juices. And I think if people can start looking at different types of genres of fiction, whether it's a thriller, whether it's horror, whether it's romance, whether it's fantasy, those types of things tell you how to teach, how to really tell a story. Because creativity in its own right, it really just creativity is storytelling. So whether you're doing content creation, art, making music, it doesn't really matter. You're telling a story. And so you need to know how a story is built. And stories are what fiction authors do. And you can really learn some interesting things. Like a real quick thing, like thrillers are all about suspense. If, you, if anyone's ever read a thriller, you can't put the book down. But that's because that's how the author wrote that book. Literally, you have to read to the end of the page. You flip the chapter and you're like, oh, I got to keep reading. That's not the case for fantasy. 
if you were to do fantasy, you could stop and just be like, ah, okay, I, I'm good for a little bit, right? There's different things you can take. And so from a content creation standpoint, you know, if you want to have an engaging podcast, if you want to have an engaging YouTube channel, learning suspense is really important to you to know how do you do that hook? How do I keep that viewer engaged? So I'm always telling people to read more fiction, but I would also say start a podcast, start a, a social media channel of some kind, um, because getting comfortable speaking on camera is something that is highly valuable and really challenging at first. But once you get into that groove, it becomes really, really fun. And when you're able to start pairing that with storytelling, I imagine that no matter who you are and whatever your you know background is, you're going to be able to create some incredible content. So that would probably be my three. I would say read more, start a podcast, and probably start a uh, social media channel of some kind. Love it. I, I wasn't expecting the, the read the fantasy novels or the, the the nonfiction, but you're right. I mean, every time I yes. feel like I, I I download a new audio book that, that has something to do with it, I'm something I'm interested in. I mean, I get so excited. But but you're right. Like it, that narrative and the way to articulate that to an audience, uh, you can't just like f fire out like a fire hydrant all, all the information that you that you love uh because it has to be done in a in a in a narrative kind of way where people it can actually land for people so yeah that's yeah, great really good advice yeah. i'll add i'll add one thing to that and it's just that um i lately i've been thinking a lot about a quote from a famous english famous english author named em forrester who said this this is famous in the writing realm but he says the king died and then the queen died is a story the king died, and then the queen died of grief is a plot. The point mm -hmm. is, stories are really just a sequence of events. But when you add a plot, that's causality. This mm -hmm. happened, and then this happened because it had to happen. And I think that's missing from a lot of content creators, where people have a lot of information, a lot of knowledge. They have a lot of sequence of events. They have a lot of things, but they don't know how to string them in together in a way that naturally makes sense. And that's mm -hmm. plot. And fiction teaches you plot. It teaches you why this thing had to happen and then this happened. And if you're able to start breaking that down as you're reading, it's probably one of the most powerful things you can do for your creativity. Well, I love awesome. that. So you, know, you know, something I can't help but think as you're speaking to this is that we we are so incredibly judgmental of ourselves. We're, we're such our big, you know, our worst enemy in, in many cases. And I know with uh, when you start putting video content out there, there, there's nothing more vulnerable, maybe. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of other things that are more vulnerable than that. But it's such a raw experience to go back and, and watch yourself. And so there, there has to be um, maybe a new mindset around just being more resilient with like, hey, I'm not this perfect specimen that I thought I was <laughs> before I got in video and realized how terrible I was at this. Um, what about that side of things? Just that so that the mental like anguish of, you know, of not being who you maybe thought you were or, or just that process of getting better at, at your craft. It's tough. It's tough. And I can speak from experience, you know, like before, before we went online in 2019, I never made Facebook posts. I never posted on social media at all. I just like, I might as well have not existed online. And so all of a sudden I found myself in this place. I remember when we first started having success on TikTok, the first two weeks, I didn't show my face. It was just the body donors. And then, you know, you keep on seeing these comments, face reveal, face reveal, face reveal. And I'm like, I guess I got to do this at some point. 
This is before we had the YouTube channel, before we had anything. And it was nerve wracking. And I've never quite been 100% comfortable watching myself. But what has happened is I've learned to also kind of let, let go. The more you do it, and I think this is also different for the generations, you know, like Gen Z, Gen Alpha, these, these younger All generations, it. <laughs> it's natural. It's yeah. natural. There's always been that, you know, if, you know, for me though, I mean, I'm a millennial and, you know, it's a little awkward for me. Gen X, it's very awkward, you know, boomers, it's obviously awkward, but I think the more you do it and the more you just let yourself be vulnerable, the easier it actually becomes, but not just easier it becomes easier in an important way because I think there's something just really interesting that happens when you talk to a camera that I think a lot of people would love to do. And you see it all the time on TikTok. People talk to their camera when they're in their car. Why? Because no one's there. But all of a sudden, it's like if you're able to do that, you might be able to make some really cool vulnerable type content. And not to say that you need fans or anything like that. But what I think it does is it does something for you creatively to get in that mindset. It's a challenge. Um, but I find that if you just put, if you not necessarily push through it, but if you do it, it will become more natural. And you're going to be surprised with how much it sparks your creativity. Absolutely. It's so rewarding, I, I find too. I mean, not that I have anywhere near the presence that you do online, but I, I really feel that creative flow when I get to even see how the words come out and, and see how something was, was shared or articulated or the kind of story that maybe I was able to piece together. There's, there's a sense of accomplishment that comes with that. And then it's, it's you sharing your message with the world. So I'm I, I wanted to make sure that we, we touched on that mindset piece because I think that's critical for people and, and it becomes the biggest block because they think, oh yeah, that, that's great for somebody else. That's, that's not possible for me. So especially when you speak to um, you know, veterans that, that maybe only know one way of doing things and they've only ever known that. And so who are they to, to share a message or, or to tap into creativity? But that's the beauty of it is that we're all so unique, just like we started this conversation around the variability of, of the physical structures within. Like there's all this variation that makes us unique uh, to be able to express a message on, online in the way that you teach. So um, can, you, can you remind people just again, like how, how they can... Connect with you through your Substack, uh, your new YouTube channel, and obviously, I'm sure you'd still uh, get people to go back to the Institute of Human Anatomy. But yeah, to share all the places that people can connect with you again, if you could. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you can find me on Substack. It's just you search the Dissection Room. You can find me on YouTube again. Just search the Dissection Room. Uh, if you want to reach out through Instagram, you can find me at uh, Real Justin Cottle. I had, to, I had to do a reel because there was a lot of fake Justin Cottles out there. So real Justin Cottle. Um, and then Institute of Human Anatomy. Every, every, Institute of Human Anatomy is everywhere. Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube. Um, but if you want to contact me specifically, that's the, probably the best way to go. It'd be Substack, YouTube, or Instagram, The Dissection Room, or real Justin Cottle. Oh, that was a mouthful. That was. That was awesome. <laughs> David? No, that's good, man. This has been fun, buddy. Really enjoyed uh, chatting with you today, buddy. Uh, a lot of wisdom from you, man. I need. I want to learn more from you, so I'll definitely be watching your content and jumping on your stuff, bud. Yeah, and uh, on the note on the the cold plunge, as we started the the conversation with my own experience, I've never heard anyone explain to the detail that your your body. What's what's his name again? Jonathan. Jonathan, yeah. He did a great job on that uh, cold plunge video. So if you want to learn a little bit more about cold plunging, check out that video on the Institute of Human Anatomy. 
Uh, Justin, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much uh, for being here with us. Thanks, guys. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to subscribe to the Dr. Dads and share with your family and friends. You can also follow and interact with Dr. Nick and Dr. David on Facebook and Instagram for a daily dose of inspiration and the latest in health and wellness. Be well.